Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hey everyone and welcome to Superwomen. I'm your host, Rebecca Minkoff. Today's episode, I'm interviewing Anne Fullenweider, the editor-in-chief of Marie Claire. I love Anne because not only has she spotlighted so many incredible women and told their stories, but she has this incredible event every year where she gets 200 of movers and shakers, women, all together from San Francisco and L.A. and really helps foster the next set of female leaders doing things, working together, being inspired, creating together. She's an awesome woman, incredibly giving, kind, and warm. Take a listen. I'm here with Anne Fullenweider, the editor-in-chief of Marie Claire. Thank you for doing this with me. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So I've known you for a long time. I think it feels like fashion is a long time, right? Yeah, I know. It feels like forever in a great way. We're so young. (laughs) We're so young. And what I love about what you've done since you've been at Marie Claire is you've really dug into women's issues, human rights issues. What do you see as sort of the greatest things to highlight right now, aside from our current political administration? Ah, there's so much right now. I mean, I have to say, first of all, that I've just really been carrying this torch. Mary Claire began in France in 1937, has always been um, devoted to women's rights and the issues women face around the world. Um, We, perhaps I can take credit for jointly bringing it forward to the workplace and how women are facing in the workplace. But I think right now we're really focused on immigration. We were already working on a issue devoted to immigration and how that affects women, how the experience helps uh, how the experience affects women, but then the crisis at the border not that long ago sort of took center stage, and we were kind of we had about half of it done, and we're like, well, we got to rush this into production. So we've been talking to all different women around the country who have immigrated to the United States or are the daughters of immigrants, and um, how that's really part of the American dream and baked into the story of our country, and how that seems to be that story seems to be twisted and getting lost. Right. Marie Claire was one of the first fashion magazines to really show and celebrate plus-size models as well, and representing them as healthy, as normal. What do you look for, and how has that changed as we want to increase representation for all different kinds of body types, different ethnicities, different hair? Um, We really look for people that are going to appeal to our readers, and what appeals to our readers more and more is someone that reflects who they are or who their friends are and who they're seeing. And it really wasn't that conscious a decision. It became something, you know, actually before me, there was an intern who pitched a story, uh, a column called Big Girl in a Skinny World. And it came to our attention that women of all sizes love fashion. And this sounds like such an obvious point right now, but at the time in the fashion magazine, it was pretty, you know, I'm not going to say revolutionary, but it was a very new idea, which sounds so sad that that was the case. Do you feel like it was hard at first? Uh, you know, you are running a business as well, like, you know, talking with your partners or your advertisers saying, no, this is what we're going to do. Was there that ever that fear? 
I think over the years that fear has pretty much been beaten out of me because Mary Claire, A, people kind of tend to expect it from our brand and also the culture is really catching up. I mean, right now, I think we're in the middle of something, something that I make sure we're not behind. I mean, the right. the culture is, the, the rate at which our readers and the culture at large are accepting difference and authenticity and um, a whole different beauty standard is really, I think, really encouraging and, yeah. and transformational. Totally. It's an exciting time to be in media because it's great to be part of that movement, but I really think it's due to the internet and Instagram and the fact that there's more and more user-generated content out there. The old standard of what a magazine would do started to seem really fake and outdated very quickly. Yeah, but I still feel there are some magazines that haven't gotten the message yet. I'm like, wake up, please. <laughs> You're going down um, in flames. I know. You talk about that. Yes, yes. I know <laughs> you, you talk want. about as much as you like, but no, we're very, um, we're just, but we're working at that every day. I feel like we get better every day. We certainly have mastered it. There's still time to look through the issue and think, oof, this is not diverse as I would like it. Right. Or um, companies would look too similar or, yeah. you know, I, I think it's, we have to actively work against our own conscious bias or unconscious bias. And the more we're all aware of that and talk about it and have lots of different kinds of people on our staff, people who come from different places and look different, the better we are at doing that. Totally. What's the bravest story you've ever told? So I'm really proud of so many stories that we've done. I was just speaking today about a story that we did a few years ago in reaction to a story about Somali mom, the activist who did a lot of great work to get children and young girls out of um, prostitution in Cambodia. And there was a a real sort of takedown of her in another magazine, in a news magazine. And we had worked with her in the past and just didn't think the whole thing sounded right and or just didn't agree with the really the, the sort of intention of the article. And we sent our reporter back to Cambodia to speak with and meet with Somali mom and also with people who were interviewed for the original article. And we kind of corrected a lot of things and really um, sort of, I think there was kind of a slam against her out there. And we, I feel very proud that we sort of upheld the spirit of what she'd been doing for many, many years. Yeah. She was super brave. Yeah. And we have got a lot of, you know, so many women who are, and men who are really brave and doing something counter to the culture get attacked for it. Um, you've had an enviable career in publishing. So who are some of the women that have helped you get to where you are? So I really have very three very clear-cut stories. And basically every promotion that I've ever gotten, for the most part, has been by a woman. So my first job, I was an intern at the Paris Review. And um, which is a literary magazine run by George Plimpton, who's this sort of old literary icon in New York. And his assistant quit while I was an intern. And another woman in the office named Elisa Chappelle, who's a writer and was an editor there, went up and championed me to take the place. So that was my first full-time job in New York, thanks to Elisa Chappelle, who lives in Brooklyn, who I see once in a while. Uh, secondly, when I got to Vanity Fair, I was similarly in a very junior role and was promoted and championed by Amy Bell, who I have a lot of my career to thank for, and she was really also a great role model. You know, I didn't grow up with a mom who worked, and I didn't really know how I was going to do it, and I was sort of just hoping every day was going to get a little clearer, um, so I really had her as a role model to see how she did that. And then lastly, long story, but I, had, I was at a different company as an editor-in-chief of Bride's magazine, and an opening came up to be editor-in-chief of Mary Claire, 
and I actually turned it down. I've told the story before, but I, I felt really <laughs> so. So I was editor in chief of Brides Magazine at Condé Nast, and I'd been there for like nine months max. And um, I got a call from Hearst saying that there was going to be an opening at the editor, as the editor in chief of Mary Claire, and I thought that's a really great job. Too bad it's not the right time because I have this other job. I just started and I just hired all these people who just redesigned the magazine and I've just merged the web team and the, and the print team together for the first time. And there's just, I've got this big project going on. I can't do it. And I turned it down. And um, Joanna Coles, who was the current editor of Mary Claire, who was moving on to another job in the company. And so it wasn't like I was, you know, it was all friendly and kosher. Uh, anyway, she took me out to lunch and was like, basically, what are you thinking? Right. <laughs> <laughs> this is a really good job. It's not going to come up again. And you really need to rethink that. And I went home and I asked my husband, who's really been so supportive and helpful and a huge sounding board all these years. But he said this great thing that, listen, this is like a head coach job in the NFL. There's only so many teams and the coaches only leave every once in a while. And so um, it was due to her encouragement as well. But definitely Joanna Coles championed me for the job. And I'm really grateful. I'm still here. I think it's refreshing to hear that three women did that with you because I felt, especially in our industry, you don't hear a lot about a women helping each other. Yeah. So it's nice that 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 they they did I've that. I've had some really great male bosses too, but this specific, like when you really get down to charting yeah. each step of the way. Yeah. I've been very fortunate. Yeah. You know, I mean, we've all worked with toxic people as well, men and women. Um, yeah. And I've had my fair share of those as well. But I really did like the actual sort of biggest moments of my career were all championed by women. Awesome. Yeah. So when people see high powered or high achievers or people in positions that seem, you know, unattainable, they hear all the good stuff. They don't always usually hear the challenges or some of the, the pain points. I talk a lot about, very open about lots of our pain points just because I want people to know it's not, it's not Cinderella. Right. Um, so what's like a challenge you face and how did you get through that within your career? Well, two things. One is I am really shy. I would never know that. <laughs> well, I've worked, worked against it or worked in spite of it. Or I actually think it's been very helpful because, well, I mean, my jobs have been really helpful to my being shy because it gives me something to talk about. All I need is one piece of content and I'm fine. But just to go into a cocktail party, for example, and just like, hi, you know, just I... I'm really um, a secretly shy person, and that's been, kind of, frankly, a challenge. As in a, the more senior I've gotten in my industry, the more public my job has become, the more difficult I find. I mean, it's, it becomes a muscle that you sort of use over and over again. So that's one thing I think. And then the other thing is that I really there's a real myth out there that a high achieving woman with a family has figured it out, or that sh- there is such a thing as balance, or that with the right uh, mindset and with the right discipline and with the right help in place, it all works out. And I think that's also a really a disservice to women everywhere because um, while I did find a way to stay in New York City, have a career that I, I find really compelling and have a family and a marriage, it's a challenge every day. And I think that the only way to do it and enjoy any day of it at all is to acknowledge first thing in the morning that someone's going to get screwed. <laughs> <laughs> that someone is not going to get all the attention that you need, that that they need from you at that moment. But in the long run, you can pretty much work it out. Um, and there's really no such thing as balance. Agreed. And I hate it when people ask that question. Yes. 
Because I'm like, that was a word made up by someone to make us feel like we're failures. Yes. It really sets us up to feel badly about ourselves. Yeah. And most of us feel a little badly about ourselves anyway. So um, that whole line of questioning, I feel like it was really popular a couple of years ago. Like, yes. How do you balance, how do you balance it? it all? Yes. How do you balance it all? The answer is no, I don't. No. I give some of it my attention some of the time and some other parts of it my attention other parts of the time. I like to look at it as a graph and there's like peaks and valleys, but if the trend is generally going yes. up, then I feel like, all right. Yes, or I would even if the trend is generally just bad. Even <laughs> I don't even need to go up. I just need to it keep it. It could be like a slight up. little yes. bunny hill, and yeah. I'm good. Right, right. <laughs> Being that you know the time that we're in, many many people are hyper aware of making sure you know female equality, whether it's in the workplace or pay, is something that it's on my mind all the time, and it's on probably more male dominated companies' mind. But do you feel uh, pressure within? good pressure within Marie Claire to make sure that female writers are represented, female photographers, like that that world is still a lot of females. It's so funny because I often get asked this and I always think, well, God, I work with all women. I've always had, I've had a lot of female bosses and my staff is almost entirely women. So we're good. Right. But actually the magazine is much more than the people in the office. And over time I've realized that actually yeah, we certainly use mostly female writers just because our stories are, we want our stories to, be meaningful to our audience. Our audience is 98% women. So we definitely have lots of female writers, but in other areas, especially photography, it's really tough. And it's also, um, it was tough anyway. There are not as many female photographers at all. Like I can believe that when I look down the roster of like the photographers we've used in the last, let's say six years, um, it's just jarring to me how many of them are men. And so that's been something we've been really working on. We have a new creative director, Kate Lanfear, who's also been really great at finding photographers. Even And the other thing, now that it's sort of chic to have female photographers, the four best ones are in like extreme demand and they're not always available. So Kate has been great at finding new, younger female photographers. Um, and that's been the most recent push that, I'm, that we're working on. That's really exciting. Yeah. Yeah. It's harder than I thought. I'm sure. It's like talking, like trying to find an engineer who's female or a woman in tech. It's like impossible. Yeah. Um, So I was lucky enough to go on the power trip. Can you explain for me what the power trip is? So the power trip is a pop-up conference in the sky. Um, What it really is, is we partner with JetBlue and we got a plane and we started in New York and we invite 100 power women from New York and we get on a plane and we program it and we have lots of delightful treats, you know, a facial with Madonna's facialist. Um, one year it was tickets to Hamilton. Um, we give away lots of things on the plane and have a great sort of party on the plane. And then we land in San Francisco and we've invited 100 more or less. We don't have the space restrictions of the um, plane, so maybe we invite a few more of our favorite women in San Francisco, Silicon Valley, LA. Um, the criteria being that you have to be like a director, the president, founder, or at least the most senior ranking woman in your organization. So these are women at, you know, at the peak of their career, or at the, a really high point in their career. And we um, do, the whole idea was like, all these women are so busy and they get invited to every single thing and they don't really need any of this, right? They're, they're going to go to another fabulous conference next week. So the idea for, women was you could leave after breakfast on Monday and get home before dinner on Tuesday and so we just did like a few great high impact panels you know we had Gwyneth Paltrow launch her 
pop-up beauty shop in San Francisco, really her beauty line. We had Drew Barrymore take us through her wine collection. We had the founder, Mary Ellis Bond, the founder of the Museum of Ice Cream, check us on a tour of the Museum of Ice Cream. So fun things to do, a little discussion, but we all know that the most fun part of these things is the time in between the sessions. Anyway, just a really special, all female-led, you know, like we had female pilots on the plane. We had um, even the baggage handlers for, the, for our flight were women. And then we go on the plane and come back to New York and home for a late dinner, but dinner on Tuesday. What I loved is that you brought so many women from so many diverse backgrounds together. And that was really refreshing as someone who felt like I'm in the same insular fashion community. Um, so what was sort of the inspiration behind that? I've been trying to like sort of pinpoint the magic of the power trip now for two and a half years as we gear up for our third one. And I think it's really that you're not alone. Like you as a fashion designer and a founder and a business owner, of course you're surrounded by people in your industry all the time. You know, that's the nature of any job. I mean, even if, when you're at the top, right, when you're running an organization, or you're really, really senior. Most of the people, if not all the people you see every day work for you or they're people you work for. I mean, both, a lot of us have both. And then the people in your industry that you're seeing all the time are friendly and great. You learn from them, but most of them are your competitors, right? right? If they're not within your siloed organization. And if you're like you or me, you also go home at the end of the day as much as you can to go see your kids, say hello to your husband, whatever. You know, your partner, spend a little quality time in your own life. And therefore, especially as women, I think we've, we are pretty isolated. As women leaders, women who are at the top of their organizations, it's extremely isolating. But so in inviting all of our friends and women who, are, who, are, who we love and women who are impressive and have had great careers, we, it is a bit accidental that we ended up having a whole bunch of different industries represented. But the fa- every single woman who's at the top of any uh, organization feels a bit of this isolation and the fact that we can all get together on a plane, fly to San Francisco, meet women in similar positions in San Francisco, um, it was really just an act of creating community. Yeah. And there used to be, you know, like not that long ago, all the people at the tops of every organization were white men who could get together at probably their country club or their golf club or their, these things, these get-togethers I've been hearing about for you, bourbon tastings, whatever, golf trips. And there was this sort of built-in community that was basically inherent in being elite. Mm-hmm. And things have progressed. There are a lot of women who have a lot of power now. There could be more. But um, we don't have the built-in institutions for getting together at the end of the day and having a gin and tonic and shooting a pool or whatever. I love that you highlighted loneliness because, you know, as women, we have so many different dimensions. And, and I think some people might be like, oh, poor her. She's at the top of her company and she's lonely. But it's true. You get to a place where you're like, you can't share your woes with the people that work for you. And if you're there, you know, and then you have friends, you know, that sometimes even aren't in your world, they can't understand. Right. right? Mm-hmm. Like friends I grew up with don't understand my struggles. Yeah. So to like, that was why I think you hit it on the head. Like that was why it was so great because I'm still in touch with so many of those women Yes, and they're great ears. You can just vomit to and they get it. Yeah. So my next question is, I feel like the next generation is more politically and socially aware than I ever was. In fact, I didn't feel like I was even politically aware until a year ago. Um, do you find that you're focusing more and more the magazine on those topics and less fashion? Is it starting to just naturally go there? I mean, mostly I always, like Mary Claire really has always done this. And it did in the, uh, it was founded next year, the 25th anniversary, so founded in 1994. So we really, in the US, have always done that. I mean, there was a, there was a famous Mary Claire France 
launched an abortion march in Paris, and I've got to find out the year for you, but just they really have always done this. Um, I think what's changed is less often am I asked the question like, wow, you guys cover fashion and real issues. That's so weird. Why would you do that? And my answer was always like, this represents everyone I've always known in my life. Like all my college roommates, we'd sit around and talk about our shoes, our nail color, and also the problems of the world. Um, so I think that Mary Claire really has always been there and the world has caught up to it. And I still stand by the idea that you can be really interested in what the bag of the season is and how we're going to preserve Roe versus Wade. Agreed. Most people I know, most women I know in New York care about what they're wearing and care about the world, whether it should be the environment or Roe versus Wade and Supreme Court or the immigration crisis or you know, these are conversations I've had with many, many well-dressed women. And so Mary Claire, I think, speaks to those women for sure and has always done that. The thing about are we doing fashion less? No. Okay. Um, what do you feel about, you know, I still love a magazine and I still consume magazines, um, but obviously you, it's no news to you. It's an endangered species. Is print going to survive? What are you doing to evolve the magazine or to stay relevant where print is threatened, I guess? So two things. One is I feel like since I got to New York City in 1995, everyone's been telling me the party is over. 23 years later, 20, what is it, 20-something, 25 years later? Almost 25 years later. Yeah. You know, I've been in publishing that whole time. I started at the Paris Review, a literary magazine where we didn't even have email. And I the wish. world did have email, by the way. We were just behind. <laughs> but it was really new. So, I mean, we've I've, I've seen lots of different things happen. Yes, the digital age and the internet and um, especially Instagram is a really strong new force in the way people interpret culture. Magazines I've always worked at, their role is to interpret culture and to talk to you about the latest thing, but also sort of digest and present to you the world that you're sort of consuming in a way that you understand it. I do think there's room for all sorts of media everywhere. And I think it's funny right now at Hearst, they're talking a lot about the fact that they remember this when this happened to TV. They remember when this happened to newspapers. I don't think every single magazine is going to survive the next 10 years. Right. But... Mary Claire and a whole bunch of others are here and doing well and strong. Yeah. So when you cover these stories, some of them being very intense, do you ever feel like it bleeds into your personal life, like your um, emotional connection to, to what you're finding out or what you're covering? You know, I feel, I ask that of a lot of people we cover. Because, yeah. you know, people who are working in these really serious problems in the world and solving them are much more in the trenches than I am. Right. Um, and they have an answer that actually I'm for the first time right now sitting here understand, which is I'm pretty interested in this stuff anyway. I'm reading about it no matter what. And I'm actually just really grateful that I'm able to participate in improving or at least getting the word out about people who are improving. So I feel a little bit better. If I was just reading the headlines and felt I had no role in it, I think I would feel worse. Right. Um, so that's one part of the answer. And the other part of the answer, as you probably know, is that there's nothing like... You know, you get home from a stressful day at work, no matter what, even if it has nothing to do with, like, horrible things happening in the world. There's nothing that resets your mind as quickly as, like, a kid running up to you and saying, Mommy, Mommy. So I find, I mean, there is the answer to your previous question, like, the whole idea of, like, balancing work and family or not balancing it. I find they really help each other mm-hmm. on a good day. Yeah. Most of the days, though. Like, you get to work, you focus, you got to do a lot of stuff because you also have to get home. And then you get home... And you're really glad to see your family. I mean, for me personally, I don't pretend to know this for all women at all. 
for me personally, staying home for those four months on maternity leave, as much as I love my babies and love my children, was really tough. That was just hard for me. Yeah. And I felt so much more grateful for my family coming home to them after doing something else for a little bit. Yes. On Fridays, I can't wait to get home. And on Sundays, I'm really excited Monday is tomorrow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so I'm like, whatever, big, big fight at home, come to work, <laughs> it goes away. Right. When you walk in the door at home and all of a sudden, like, you know, whatever, dinner needs something or the dog needs to be walked or the kids are, need help with their homework and whatever you were worried about, it probably deserves your attention a lot more. Right. But it just has to go to the back seat for at least the next hour or two. Yeah. I meet a lot of young people, and I'm sure you do too. And, you know, you are at the top of a game that so many people want to have. And what advice would you give them? Because I think that there's this short view of I can click and get my Uber, I can click and get my Amazon. So my career should be that quick or that easy. Mm. So, what advice, if you have any, to our listeners? I mean, it's a combination, right? Like, you should work hard, you should be ambitious. You, I admire that sort of expectation of the world to be yours right. right but on the other hand life is long the road is long your career will be long so be a little patient if you're too patient right you're just not going to do anything but if you're too impatient you're just going to shoot yourself in the foot right i don't know if that's good advice <laughs> I, don't know. I don't know what kind of advice do you give young people i tell them that you can't amazon prime your career <laughs> that's good i said that there's you can get almost anything you want very quickly, but this is a 10-year marathon, you know? Mm -hmm. And if you really want something, like, don't think you're going to make half a million dollars in year two. Like, you're going to make maybe, you know, in 15 years see that light or whatever it is. Yeah. I'm not even talking. It doesn't have to be money. It could be rank. But right. there's just no quick answer I've seen yeah. to, like, getting where you want to go. Yeah. I mean, hard work, really, you know, just putting your head down and doing some work, but also keeping your head up looking for opportunity. I have come to believe recently that there actually is no such thing as luck. There certainly is privilege. People are born in different ways of life. But most career luck happens certainly in conjunction with, if not because of hard work, like a preparation. Yeah. You know, and also I've just been speaking to, we've been interviewing a lot of women about this too. Behind most success, like when you ask, even the stories are like, yeah, and then I just happened to like, meet so-and-so and they handed me this job actually behind all of that even if it's there is some serendipity there's a plan yeah you know people i'm sure you had a plan i didn't think i would get there but i had a plan but i thought i just said you know what my my i guess mainstay has been it's a numbers game for some of this stuff you know i just need to meet lots of people in the industry and someone will help me or I need to send out my my samples to lots of magazines. I mean, it was always like a, like in the beginning, right? Mm -hmm. And it was sort of like, how much can you throw against the wall and something's got to stick? So that was always my like, if I make, if I email a hundred stores, one's got to bite. Right. So it was always this kind of like, and then just building on that. That's that makes sense. That's yeah, great. Thank you so much, Ann. Thanks so much for having me, Rebecca. And that was my interview with Anne Fullenweider. You can see her work at Marie Claire. Don't forget to download, rate, review us wherever you listen to your podcasts. Send me an email, superwomen at rebeccaminkoff.com or DM me at rmsuperwomen. I love hearing from you. I love hearing the things you love about the episodes, the things you hate, women you want me to interview. Every time I get one of these emails, it is fuel for me to keep going. 